I'm back. Monday, August 2nd, 2021. Born the battle. Born the battle. Miss my cue. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I'm your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. However you listen to this podcast, be it Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, the player inside the blog. Hope you're having a good week outside of podcast land. It is good to be back. Uh, I had an unexpected extra couple of days back home, but I'm back. I want to thank Beth Blair, who was over at VA's Fresh Focus podcast, for filling in that extra week. If you haven't yet, go check out that VA podcast. There's a lot of good stuff over there in terms of nutrition information, and they crank out consistent content all the time. Tell you what, overall, it was a good trip back home to the woods of Washington State. Y'all almost lost me. Uh, It was hard to come back this time, let me tell you. However, as good as a vacation is, and it can be good to recharge and refocus, it's important to realize that vacation is just that. Uh, the feels that you have on vacation <laughs> aren't reality. And at some point, you got to come back to reality to work. Although I do wish that someday my reality is closer to my hometown because it was really good visiting everyone back there. New admin notes. If you're Googling Born the Battle and notice that our website is broken, uh, the URL, the first uh, link that you see when you Google Born the Battle, I'm working on it. Uh, that URL is broken as we've recently consolidated and finally officially launched that VA podcast network that I've talked about a couple of times here on Born the Battle. Uh, recently, we launched it on the Vantage Point website. The first link that was Googleable still needs a redirect, but you can find us at blogs.va.gov forward slash vantage forward slash VA hyphen podcast hyphen network, and then go to shows at the top. And our home website is in the drop-down menu. There you can catch the latest blogs from Born the Battle, listen to all the episodes, and sign up for our newsletter, our VA podcast newsletter, so you don't miss a blog from the entire network. As of right now, we have six shows on our network, with more coming online within the next couple of months. And the newsletter is a great way to get blogs and podcasts delivered right to your inbox, right to your email inbox. So go check it out. And heck, while you're at it, you can subscribe to all of the podcasts in the network on your favorite podcast player of choice. So if you get a chance, check out blogs.va.gov forward slash vantage forward slash VA hyphen podcast hyphen network. Looks like we've received a rating or two, but no new reviews since I've been gone. No worries. If you haven't yet, please consider writing a review for Born the Battle on Apple Podcasts. Doing so helps us climb higher in the algorithms, giving more veterans a better opportunity to discover and listen to the interviews, our benefits breakdown episodes, and so they can hear what's in our news releases. News releases. Now, I'm undoubtedly going to be missing some of them while I was out. Uh, as I've only as I'm only going back a week or so. However, you can find all the ones I missed at va.gov forward slash OPA forward slash press rel. That's P R E S S 
R-E-L. Now, I'm going to start with two of the biggest ones that were uh, that came out while I was gone. First one says, for immediate release, the Department of Veterans Affairs is offering a new COVID-19 refund modification option to assist veterans who require a significant reduction in their monthly mortgage payments because of the COVID-19 pandemic. In some cases, veterans can receive a 20% payment reduction. In others, the reduction can even be larger. This new option is part of the Biden-Harris administration expanded government-wide effort to help homeowners retain their homes as they weather the economic challenges resulting from the ongoing pandemic. Under the new COVID-19 refund modification, VA can purchase a veteran's past due payments and amounts of unpaid principal, depending on how much assistance is necessary, subject to certain limits. Loan servicers, that's be your bank or your mortgage uh, lender or whoever you have, can also modify the loan. These efforts help ensure that the veteran can afford future mortgage payments. Like with VA's COVID-19 partial claim option, the veteran's deferred indebtedness from a COVID-19 refund modification will be established as a junior lien. The junior lien will not accrue interest will not require monthly payments, and will only become due when the property is either sold or the guaranteed loan is paid off or if the guaranteed loan is refinanced. Veterans can get a COVID-related forbearance through September 30th, 2021. To learn more about this new option, visit VA's home loan program at www.benefits.va.gov forward slash home loans forward slash resources underscore, right? That little line circulars.asp or call 1-877-827-3702. All right, next one says for immediate release on July 26th, the Department of Veterans Affairs Secretary Dennis McDonough announced he will make COVID-19 vaccines mandatory for Title 38 VA healthcare personnel. This includes physicians, dentists, podiatrists, optometrists, registered nurses, physician assistants, expanded dental auxiliaries and chiropractors who work in the Veterans Health Administration facilities, visit VHA facilities, or provide direct care to those VA serves. Each employee will have eight weeks to be fully vaccinated. The department's decision is supported by numerous medical organizations, including the American Hospital Association, America's Essential Hospitals, and a multi-society group of the leading infectious disease societies. Also, the American Medical Association, American Nurses Association, American College of Physicians, American Academy of Pediatrics, the Association of American Medical Colleges, and the National Association or Home Care and Hospice also endorse mandated COVID-19 vaccination for healthcare workers. In recent weeks, VA has lost four employees to COVID-19, all of whom were unvaccinated. At least three of those employees died because of the increasingly prevalent Delta variant. There has also been an outbreak among unvaccinated employees and trainees at a VA law enforcement training center, a third such outbreak during the pandemic. All right. The next one is on our new deputy secretary. Uh, This is the position right under the secretary of the VA, Dennis McDonough. Uh, Deputy Secretary Ronald Remy was confirmed on July 15th. He is a former Army captain, attorney, and athletic administrator. He recently served as a chief operating officer and chief legal officer for the NCAA, where he crafted and advocated appropriate data-driven policy positions on various issues, including academics, amateurism, athletic competition, and health and safety. 
So welcome aboard, Deputy Secretary Remy. Uh, welcome to VA. In the press release, there were some other political appointments and other shifts around leadership at VA. If you get a chance, check out the full press release for all the shifting of positions. All right. And the last release is concerning VA resetting relationships with labor unions. The Department of Veterans Affairs is taking steps to reestablish its relationship with bargaining unit employees effective July 20th. This includes reestablishing the National Partnership Council, which was disbanded in 2017, restoring official time for Title 38 employees, which means VA doctors, nurses, physician assistants, and other Title 38 employees can work on union issues during the workday. This will also continue to deliver on President Biden's promise to protect the federal workforce, and they will be addressing many pending grievances and civil suits filed by the AFGE, NAGE, and FFE, and NNU. All right, so this is episode 250. We had to go big on this one. So how about being that the Olympics are being held right now at the time of this release, how about an Olympic gold medalist? How about an Olympic gold medalist that won his gold medal the last time the Olympics was held in Tokyo, Japan? Back in 1964, Marine veteran Billy Mills won gold in the 10,000 meter running event. You can find the footage of that race on this episode's blog on blogs.va.gov. We embedded a couple of YouTube videos in there. Uh, the footage of him winning is regularly used as a top 10 win in Olympic history. Nobody. And I mean, nobody expected him to win. And he won a grueling race against two competitors, one being the world record holder of the event and another game competitor. Uh, and he beat them both off the last turn of a grueling race. If you haven't seen the footage, you need to check it out. But I'm gonna quit talking. I'm gonna quit running my own suck. Uh, I'm gonna let Billy tell his own story himself. So without further ado, Marine veteran, Billy Mills. Enjoy. I'm sure that you're getting a lot of other media contacting you because your story from the 64 games, the last time we were in Tokyo, it's pretty amazing. It, uh, it was a gift. And I think <laughs> anytime you receive a gift from, from a higher power, that uh, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, Billy Mills, uh, sir, it's an honor to have you here on Born the Battle. Uh, being that your gold medal came in Tokyo from the last Olympics uh, back in 64, uh, you've got to be excited and you have to be watching these Olympics a little more intently than you have previous ones, being that it's in Tokyo. Absolutely. In fact, if I look a little exhausted, I got to bed at 2 a.m. I got up at 3.30 and watched the watched live the opening ceremonies. So okay. your question is actually very emotional to me. Uh, what, what happened in 64, my, my tribe a year before the games said, if you make the Olympic team, we want you to honor yourself, to honor your family, tribal nation, United States of America, and in some way, do it in a manner that can, can involve global unity. Mm. It reminded me that our most powerful prayer is we are all related. And the Black Hills is the heart of everything that is. So I fly into Tokyo, 1964. I look and I see Mount Fuji. And it was like, wow, to the, to the Japanese, that has to be the heart of everything that is. Yeah. And I get there, 
and find out the unwritten theme of the Olympic Games in 64 was seeing the world as one. So when I watched this morning's opening ceremonies and 1,824 drones formed the earth. And how I saw that is the youth in 64 having the unwritten theme, seeing the world as one. It almost came full circle for you there. It's pretty amazing. I'm sure it flooded back a lot of memories. All the <laughs> memories it brings back. <laughs> um, now, I'm, I'm sure as a Marine, you know that we do also do have an active duty Marine in the games this year, Staff Sergeant uh, Stefanowitz. He's he's a wrestler at 87 kilos. He just waved, uh, you know, before this episode, he just waved, uh, before we recorded this, he just waved to goodbye to Camp Lejeune. And he's yeah. on his way to Tokyo right now, or he's probably already there. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, be, being a Marine was, uh, was twofold. It was the first time in my life I felt like I belonged. And uh, being told and to step out of photos three times when I made All-American and just not understanding why. Yeah. And then joining the Marine Corps, it was, well, we were a huge family. I, I belonged. And compounding, compounding that with a lot of my, my long runs on Camp Pendleton, just some hard, hard runs on those engineering trails. Oh, yeah. But, but I, I never felt that I was alone. I felt there was energy with me. So a few years ago, I shared that with uh, one of the leaders from the Pachanga tribe, Southern California. And his spot response was, Billy, you didn't realize Camp Pendleton is built where our sacred lands used to be. So you probably had our elders in spirit running with you on those long runs. <laughs> and it was there was so many powerful cultural and just connections that fit in with me being at Camp Pendleton and then being United States Marine. I'm willing to defend our country. It was uh, uh, the, the, the patriotism was uh, twofold. I'm, I'm a patriot because I, I fight for equality, but I'm also a patriot in understanding the opportunities that are available. Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. Now, before we get into your Olympic journey, uh, on board the battle, we usually start with the decision to join the military. Uh, but with you, I want to go back a little bit earlier than that. Uh, in my research, I saw that you were orphaned at age twelve. Correct. My my mother died when I was eight years old. I right just a few months before I turned turned nine, and uh, my dad at that time told me I had. I had broken wings. Mm. I needed a dream to heal the broken soul, to heal my broken wings. And uh, just started teaching me, in a sense, how to, how to find that energy within you. And had me believing that I could do anything in the world, that I could create magic with my dreams. And he'd say, one or two of those magical things you create just might be turned into a miracle. And I'm believing all of this, that he dies when I'm 12. So uh, I had older brothers and sisters, a younger sister, a younger brother. Uh, I knew that I was loved. I knew that I was not alone. I had the support system, although the eldest of the support system was my older brother, 
I was 12, he was uh, 22 or 23. I had joined the the, the, the Navy and uh, we just, we came together, but uh, it was challenging being orphaned at such a young age. So how many brothers and sisters did you have? Well, originally, <laughs> including my mom and dad, there were 16 of us in the family. 16? 16. But my dad adopted two others. Uh, but then my mom died, my dad died, but I also lost many of the older siblings. So of when course. we were orphaned, there were eight of us. Wow. Well, at least you had a support system of you guys together. Uh, so who, who helped raise you from 12 to, say, 18? My oldest sister, Margie, says she was uh, not uh, too many more years older than I. I. I think she dropped out of school her senior year in high school to become our mother, to, to, to raise us. And later, of course, finished her uh, high school degree, but did, did not go on to college. Uh, she was there. She, she sacrificed so many significant years of her life. Then on the male side was our older brother, Sid, who never became a brother till later in life. And he, we just, he just started his spiritual journey a year ago, uh, died at age uh, 94. But Sid became our father. And then ultimately, an older friend who's like a father. Well, without Sid, uh, the, the family probably would not have been able to stay together. We would yeah. have fallen apart and gone different ways. So he, pay, he played a vital role in, in my life. But so did my sister Margie. She, uh, uh, she kind of from a traditional way was the nurturer. Mm-hmm. So she, she nurtured me uh, into ultimately pursuing my own as a young man, rites of passage into, into manhood. Mm-hmm. And part of that was running. Uh, you used part your of gift it was of- running. The major part was my dad just saying, it takes a dream to heal, to heal broken souls. Find your dream, son. Then he would say, a dream takes you down a path to where you identify different passions in life. Find the passion, develop the skills, of the passion to equal the dream, bring them together. And then he'd say, so what happens if you bring them together? And I'd say, I don't know, Daddy. I'm eight, nine years old. He would go, boom, <laughs> magic happens, Billy. Magic happens, son. Find the magic. One or two of those magical things you do just may be turned into a, a miracle. So he had me believing in miracles. And he died when I was 12. But there, yeah. was, there was enough teachings he would also say, take the culture, the traditions, the spirituality. From them, extract the virtues and the values. Put those virtues and values into your daily life. And wherever you go in this world, compare your virtues and values with other societies' virtues and values. And you'll find a connection to communicate. So I just this little boy not knowing, understanding the wisdom he was giving me. No, yeah. As I grew up, I started searching for it, and my dad played a major role far beyond the years he was on planet Earth. It's a, it's amazing that you remember that at nine years old, those conversations. It's amazing. 
Um, so you had this gift of running. Uh, you started running uh, as, a, as a child. It ran you right into a scholarship at Kansas, correct? University of Kansas. Wow. Wow. Uh, and you were an All-American runner. Uh, however, you alluded to this already. I, I read about a time, and I guess it happened three times, you said, uh, that photographers asked you to be out of the photo with other All-Americans. Um, and after that, you went to your room. I read I read doing some research. And that's where you came up with the dream to win a gold medal. Uh, do you mind expanding on that that story? I love the way you put that. That's where I came up with the dream to win the gold medal. Because what I was struggling with was the thought of just ending it all. Wow. I just could no longer take the rejection, not understanding why I'm accepted, but I'm not accepted. Couldn't join a fraternity, etc. So I stand, I'm standing on a chair, the window's open, and I'm going to jump. Now, obviously, I didn't want to kill myself, but I wanted to go where it was quiet. It would just all be behind me. And that's where not hearing words, but energy underneath me, movement. An unspoken word was heard. Don't. Four times. The fourth time, almost like an echo. Don't. But it sounded like my dad's voice. Mm. That's what I remembered. It takes a dream to heal a broken soul. And I'm broken. And I know what it is to be broken. I'm broken. And I don't want to take my life. I want to heal. My dad said it takes a dream to heal broken souls. I write down a dream. Gold medal, 10,000 meter run. And the creator has given me the ability. The rest is up to me. Believe, believe, believe. Then, then ego got in, in the way of this beautiful spiritual feeling. I went on and wrote down, make the team in the marathon, the 5,000, and the, mar- and, and the 10,000. <laughs> I didn't make it in the five, but I made it in the marathon and the 10. And uh, wow. with, the, with the gift given to me, I won the gold medal. So that was, that was in college. You were like, this is going to happen. And it's amazing that you were able to manifest that. Um, but before that, you joined the Marine Corps. Uh, what was the decision from college to join the Marine Corps? In, in those days, and I wish it still existed today, the branches of the military would compete against one another in sport. And in an Olympic year, they would recruit college graduates okay. to become officers. Or if you're not interested in being an officer, they'd recruit you to join. Every, the draft existed. Everybody had to spend at least two years in the military. So they would recruit athletes. And I wanted to try to make the team. And I thought, well, the the best way to do it, I'm going to have my degree. Rather than just enlist, they had the itchy wool uniforms. I'm allergic to wool. (laughs) The officers had a little more quality grade. (laughs) I'll become an officer. (laughs) Gotcha. I I, I love the... uh, dress blues and all the really naive, innocent things. And maybe I can make the Marine Corps track team. So I took a commission in the Marine Corps, graduated, second lieutenant, and I was the last athlete 
the Marine Corps chose to go to Camp Pendleton to join their elite Marine Corps track team trying to make the Olympic team. Wow. So arrive arrive in February 19th, 1964, commissioned an officer a year earlier, competing cross country in the Marine Corps, and then physically fell apart, which I did in college all the time. That's when the doctor took me and examined me, gave me a glucose tolerance test, and said, my God, the reason you fell apart in the races, you, you told me you had a hard time finishing races in college. You're hypoglycemic and you're borderline diabetic. Oh my gosh. Your blood sugar goes up and drops drastically and you have all the symptoms of uh, of a major uh, low blood sugar uh, reaction. Yeah. But he said, I I don't know how to help you. Uh, You're not type two diabetic, but you're borderline. Change your diet. Go with complex carbs and good, good healthy protein. Uh, carbs, healthy carbs, vegetables. Uh, so that's what I did. And wow. the low blood sugar was eliminated to some extent, but I would still go low. Mm-hmm. So I get to Camp Pendleton uh, eight months before the games. Write down my goal. Gold medal, 10,000 meter run make the team in three events, then I drop the five, make it in two. <clears throat> and Tommy Thompson Sr., a Canadian, gold medalist in the high hurdles, but also had U.S. citizenship, coached at the Naval Academy for 30 years, 28 of those years, totally deaf. He became my mentor. Yeah. Retired from the Naval Academy. <clears throat> the Camp Pendleton Marines, uh, the, the staff with the elite track and field team, hired him to coach us. And I remember Tommy coming up to me, and he said, Lieutenant, and son, and only my dad called me son. Oh, wow. this, this white man's calling me son. I was a little uncomfortable. Then he said, I don't want to coach you but I would love to be your mentor. Then he reached out, didn't touch me, just inches away from my chest. and said, but you have, to, you have to let me inside. And that was so similar to how my dad would, would work with me. I learned the word mentor from my dad. And he'd say, you have to go inside, son. You have to get to know what's inside of you. And this, I opened up my heart to him. And uh, we sat on a course. Uh, that ended up with a Olympic record, a gold medal, <laughs> number one ranking in the world. Yeah, and uh, yeah. followed with uh, with the world record. We'll, we'll get to that. We'll get, we'll get to that. Um, uh, but first, before we get into the Olympics and, and stuff like that, I want to ask you about your Marine Corps service. Um, I'm sure there wasn't there weren't many Native American Marine Corps officers at the time. There were there were not many. And uh, I think the, the listeners might, might appreciate this story because it's not about me, yeah. but I'm involved. Paul Winder and I were on the track team. Paul Winder was an Olympian in the sprints, African-American. And then we just bonded in many, many ways. 
uh, we'd go off as officers to a track meet. And if we're in civilian clothes, and the host that's seen us would know that we're, we're officers, would make a, make a decision and say to the lead, lead officer, who was my age but was a first lieutenant, most of us were second lieutenants, and would say things more than once, do you want me to separate the two enlisted Marines from the officers? I can set them over here, looking at me and Paul. Wow. And, of course, he would always say, they're officers. We stay together. And Paul came out to Camp Pendleton to train for the games. He thought people came out of the building to witness this 1960 Olympic sprinter who was an officer of the Marine Corps being assigned his unit was there. They came out because it was the first African-American officer they ever saw. And the, the, the challenges were quiet, but they had an effect. Uh, I remember as a young officer, uh, motor transport officer, taking a unit on about a 400-mile uh, trip, mm-hmm. and there was a full colonel with us, and I was being trained. So he said, disperse the trucks. You might consider dispersing them. Ten-minute intervals. Everybody has food for lunch. Here's what be good places to stop for lunch. And you and uh, your your driver, you're bringing up the rear. Uh, just keep in touch with me. Uh, but just feel free to go into a restaurant and enjoy your, your lunch. You don't have to come to the park with us. Mm-hmm. So I have a young man, a, a just a young African-American corporal. We pull into a restaurant. I say, I'm going to the bathroom, wash my hands, order me. Tell him what to order me. I come back out. He's gone. I wait. The food comes. And I says, where's, where's the corporal? Oh, he can't eat here. This, this is in California? In the this, 60s? This is in Virginia now. Oh, Virginia. Okay. Gotcha. He's in the kitchen, there's a place for the African-Americans. So I grab my food and I go in there with him to stand by him at a little round table, yeah. fairly high. He says, Lieutenant, you, you don't belong in here. And I said, Corporal, if this is where they say you belong, we're both Marines. This is That's where right. I belong. And he was uncomfortable. So I simply said, let's go eat in the Jeep. So we got to the Jeep and we're eating. We start talking just about issues that we faced in life. We arrive at the destination. The lieutenant colonel is waiting. He has a person taking him to the barracks. And then I sit down and we kind of review. And this young lieutenant, I mean, this young, this young corporal, he salutes me and said, Lieutenant, if we're ever in combat together, I'll always have your back. And it's so powerful to hear that. The, yeah. lieutenant, the lieutenant colonel said, what was that all about? So as you said, we, we talked about racial issues. And uh, he just said, oh, 
So that they were, they were moments of reality, and that's why I say today I'm a, I'm a patriot. I'm a very, very strong patriot. But I want to deal with equality. Well, you you, you dealt with that. Uh, it looks like it sounds like you dealt with, you you saw it even in in Virginia in the 1960s, where it was a very again it was a definitely a different time. Um, and it obviously, I mean, it would have an effect on anybody. It should have an effect on anybody. So I can, I can totally understand that. Um, now there's a strong warrior. We talk about native Americans. There's a strong warrior culture in, in many native American tribes. Uh, Lakota especially has a, a very strong warrior culture. What did you take from your culture to the Marine Corps? I took the virtues and the values of our culture. And I put those into my everyday life. I compared them with the virtues and values in the Marine Corps, the virtues and values of America, virtues and values from other countries I've traveled to now to yeah. find common ground to where we can, we can come together and be loyal to one another and yet support and understand our differences. Yeah. So I took that into the Marine Corps. And I, I do that today. I've, Trying to live the virtues and the values. Maybe I give an example of what I mean by that. Uh, I mean, yeah, absolutely, um, okay. absolutely. And I think I think the listeners might might enjoy it. Yeah. One of the values I learned: truth and honesty. They're totally different, but they're together as a local Lakota value. So let me just give you, for example, honesty. Honesty is expressing your feelings expressing your opinions accurately, even though your feelings and opinions may not accurately represent the truth. You see many of our leaders in America today speaking honestly, even though they don't represent the truth. America needs to review that. The truth is an accurate representation of what you honestly expressed. Mm -hmm. So I was learning as a young Lakota to speak the truth. I was learning that there's a difference between truth and honesty. Absolutely. Um, so getting back to the, to the Olympics, you qualified for the Olympics while you're representing the Marine Corps, um, watching the footage and, and, uh, if you're listening to this, you can check out an abridged version of, of the race on YouTube from YouTube uh, on this episode's blog on blogs.va.gov. Uh, the announcer put it plainly kind of early in the race. If you watch the, the footage, uh, you were in the league pack and they basically said Billy Mills of the United States is in there. Uh, a man no one expects to win this particular event. <laughs> <laughs> like they just threw it out there like that. You just described my career. <laughs> was, I mean, was there another event that you were more heavily favored to do better in at the well, time? It's, it's very, it's kind of very interesting where I trained through every race I ran. So I trained hard. So when race day came, I was tired. Oh, wow. So I raced tired because I didn't have that many days to catch up. The only race I rested up for was the 10,000 in Tokyo. On top of that, I was diagnosed hypoglycemic 
going mm-hmm. low blood sugar. I went low blood sugar frequently in training to where it would frighten me. Mm-hmm. So putting this all together, I almost quit, retired in June or July of 1964 because I went major low blood sugar at the first Olympic trials. We had oh, wow. one in Randall's Island, New York, and I was trying to qualify in the five. I qualified in the 10 in LA, and the marathon in Southern California. I went low blood sugar, I blacked out. I don't remember the race. I just oh, remember wow. crossing the finish line. And Tommy Thompson Sr. knew I was, he knew I hypoglycemic. He brought over a couple of Coca-Colas that I put down and the blood sugar got back up. But I was so frightened, I went back and I was going to tell Pat that I, I need to take care of my health. I go back and she's all excited because Don Jaisi made the decathlon team. He won the, he won the decathlon at the, that meet. And Pat and is your wife, right? Pat is your my, wife. My wife, Patricia. Yep. Uh, so you. Was, was all excited. She's talking to Mary Lou, Don Jaisi's wife. Mary Lou is saying, can we room together in Tokyo? And I was ready to tell my wife, I'm quitting. <laughs> and she's all excited. She said, Don, Mary Lou's making arrangements for her airline ticket, her lodging. Maybe I should start that. And I said, well, yeah, I think that's a good idea. When I was ready to quit. <laughs> took, it right, took it right out of you, huh? Don't you now, say, oh, yeah. we, we don't have any money. Second lieutenant in the Marine Corps. Grew up as an orphan. And she was also more poorer than I was. Yeah. So I go to the bank the next day. Told the banker. <clears throat> I went to the bank the next day. Told the banker. I need to borrow $800 for my wife's airfare and lodging in Tokyo. So I'm on the team. So he threw out a check for $800. Wow. I tried, take doing, it. tried doing that in 2021. Well, yeah, but but of course they could take it out of your military pay. Yeah. <laughs> so so they're, they're paid before I buy food. So I go back and gave Pat the check, and she's thrilled. When I'm up all night long, I'm worried about my health. I go for a long run, a 25-mile run. Oh, go, wow. Can I make the team? Do I need Patricia there to win? And the sun's above me. And I decide, uh, I got to take care of my health. So I go back and tell Pat, took the check, so I'm taking it back to the banker. I take it back. Patricia was compassionate but devastated. Sure. So I go on another 25-mile run. Jeez. Can I make the team? I can make the team. Do I need to take Pat with me? Do I need her there to win? The sun's over me. There's no shadow, but I look and I see this beautiful, my shadow, my shadow's there. And I look so powerful. (laughs) I look so strong. I thought, I can do it. So I go back to the banker and I said, I need the $800 check again. And he said, you know, (laughs) you told me earlier you were on the team. Uh, I realized your trials hadn't even come up yet. He said, we can't lend you $800 on an assumption. Yeah. I said, I can't go back and face my wife without an $800 check. 
knowing well, knowing that she wants to go to the games. So yeah. he said, we'll lend you the money, Lieutenant. And uh, went back and told Pat, and she was thrilled. So from that point on, totally committed. Yeah. That I need her there. We're going to Tokyo together. This is our event. This is our moment. And uh, I walk out on the track to start the race. She's 14 seats up, 95 meters from the finish line. I walk by her. I do glance, but I don't look at her. In case yeah. if she showed doubt, yeah. I was not going to be able to do it. So I look yeah. and just kind of wave. And then we go up, the gun goes off, and the race is underway. Uh, I, I felt so powerful. I visualized that moment so powerfully. Uh, it was visualizing being on Clark's shoulder coming off the curve and going by him and winning. And so, Coach Thompson said, why Clark? I said, don't you think I can do it? He said, what happens if Clark's in fifth? You, you're on his shoulder in sixth. Visualize being on the lead pack of the lead yeah. person's shoulder. So I started doing that for about eight months. Put down my time, 28, 25. I can win the gold. Uh, put that down about eight, nine times the three months before the race. Oh, really? So you were you were running those times before you got to Tokyo? I I was I trained through all my races. I was making the made the team in two events. Yeah. To qualify for the ten thousand, I ran in August a month before the Olympic trials, but I ran that race tired. I ran it. Seven days after making the team of the marathon, oh, my legs wow. are tired. Yeah. I got second place, made the team. So I go to the games, converting my time in August, converting it to meters with the eighth fastest 10,000 meters in the world at the time. Wow. But I was unranked in America. <laughs> Nobody the number knew. one ranked American, Ron LaRue, was at eight tenths of a second faster than me. But he would not ranked. Dre Lindgren was the number one ranked American. And we were both 12 seconds faster than him going into Tokyo, the Olympic wow. Games. Wow. So nobody had a clue who was really the number one in America at the time. And Ron Clark, you mentioned he was the world record holder at the time. Um, so you're in the race at the Olympics that goes off. Uh, obviously, nobody has a, an idea how fast you really are. Um, at this point, in the middle of the race, you're running your fastest times ever uh, against against the world record holder at the time, Ron Clark of Australia. That had to be punishing for you. Uh, you're in Japan. Nobody knows you except for Pat and the, and the U.S. team. What made you keep going to stay with that lead pack? I, I trained to run with the lead pack. I knew training I could go time I ran. Mm -hmm. Tommy Thompson and I sat down. We discussed, what do you think you're ready for? I said I could run 28-25 any day of the week. Under any circumstance, rest it. And if it's good weather, I'm ready to get the world record. Wow. So we felt that. When the race starts, well, before the race, I start going low blood sugar, and I'm panicking. A Japanese trainer gave a U.S. trainer a candy bar. Mm -hmm. I ate the candy bar 
20 minutes, 20 minutes before the race started. Without that candy bar, I might have dropped out at the 5,000. So wow. immediately Clark takes the lead, but, but after the first lap, by the, by the time we're 600 meters into the race, I'm in fifth place within 10 yards behind. On the second lap, third lap, I move into that tight pack. We're on world record pace, but I trained for that. Yeah. But I also yeah. didn't exactly know how it would feel, although I, I trained I, I trained all through my races. I would enter my races tired. Yeah. My last workout before the race, four days before, was 200 meters out of the blocks. No 10,000 meter does that. I had a German coach time me. He goes, not too fast. I said, what was my time? He said, 23-3, but poor start. With a start, maybe 23-1, 23 flat. I'm going, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, For a long event. distance runner, that must be really good yeah. compared to what he was probably thinking was, was a sprinter. What event? I said, the 10,000 meters in the marathon. He yeah. goes, oh, very fast. <laughs> <laughs> little so, different that when you, when you so start I comparing. I had, I had the speed. Yeah. 5,000 meter mark. I'm within a second or two of my fastest three mile, but I knew I could run faster. But still, you hear that. I almost let them go. I was feeling low blood sugar. Yeah. But I think it was mental at that time. So I decided to take the lead just one more lap. That paralleled doing wind sprints on the road, 20 mile runs, telephone pole to telephone pole. Yeah. I'd sprint a telephone pole. I'd sprint another telephone pole. I'll just sprint one more telephone pole. So just one more lap. I'm going to take the lead. I took the lead. Clark slowed it down. He went by me and slowed it down. I thought, wow, I'm in here for a little longer. Two laps to go. He looks back. Third, fourth, fourth place is falling behind. There's just Clark, Gamudi, and me. Gamudi was a, a runner from Tunisia, right? Gamudi from Tunisia. Yeah. Yeah. So you noticed that you noticed that Clark looked back. So that must. What was that signaling to you that he was worried? He saw something. Well, yes. Yes. Mm. And then Woldy from Ethiopia. You saw his heart. Off. You saw his heart. Clark looks back, and I thought he's worried. <laughs> I'm going to show my presence. I'm going to take the lead. I took the lead. As soon as I took the lead, he took the lead again. Yeah. But he slowed once more. He slowed. So two laps to go. He's slowing the pace when I. When he went by me, he's also tired. I'm in the race to the finish. Yeah. So the next 600 meters, all I thought about was starting my kick, how I can get into the kick, et cetera. And, uh, but I didn't happen that way because 300 meters to go, well, 400 meters to go, I move on Clark's shoulder. Okay, move. Is, it, is that the last lap, 400 the meters? The last lap, the last lap. Uh, I was watching that and it looked kind of like NASCAR. There was like a hard bump in there. You were basically <laughs> shuffled to third place. It was like, you guys are bumping and grinding. Um, um, but you, you stayed there, for, you stayed in third for most of that final lap until, and you were pretty much out of frame until out of nowhere towards the end. Well, I'm going low blood sugar. I'm feeling that low blood sugar symptoms. Yeah. But I see Clark not worried about the runner. He's catching. We're ready to lap the runner. 
Clark lost the Commonwealth Games a year earlier by getting boxed in. So I'm still alert enough, my God, Clark's, I can box him in. Legally, he's letting me box him in. Mm-hmm. So I moved on his shoulder, then he realizes the trouble he's in. So he tapped me a couple of times, wanted me to let him out. Yeah, you, you guys got no a little way. hard bump. You got a, you got a hard bump yeah. from that one. I'm not going to move into the <laughs> next lane and say, okay, Ron. So I stayed there. He tapped me again, so I tapped him. Then he came under my arm, not accidentally, not viciously, just panicking. Competitively. Competitively. Yeah. yeah, and moved me out. I stumbled, but I thought my legs, my my hamstrings and quads were going to give out on me. Plus, I'm going low blood sugar. Sure. Now, Gamudi at that time told me later, I saw my friend Billy was out of balance. Clark must be off focus. It's time for me to strike. Yeah. But I recovered. I start closing on Clark's shoulder. Gamudi told me, oh, my God, I have to slow down to go around Billy. Ron and Billy are getting into their kicks. I can squeeze through. Oh, now I pushed my friend Billy. <laughs> yeah, because he squeezed right between you guys. Like I yeah. said, this was like NASCAR stuff. You guys, yeah, they, he, they, he bumped in right between you guys. He, he had a devastating kick. He beat me four years, a year earlier at, at the World Military Championships. Oh, wow. So he took off. Clark took off after him. I'm going low blood sugar. I decide if I go with them now, I'm not going to last. I'll let them get maybe 10 yards ahead of me. I'd make one final try coming off the curve. Within seconds, 120 meters to go coming off the curve. And I start trying to lift my knees, pump my arms, lengthen my stride. I'm responding, but very slowly. They come off straight away. I'm probably eight yards behind Clark, Argumudi, and seven yards behind Clark. I'm in lane four. Patricia's 16 seats up, 14 seats up. And I'm trying to lift my knees, pump my arms, a tingling sensation going low blood sugar. My, my mind is getting confused. But what did I think of? This runner from Germany, but it was not from Germany. I thought he was, and he didn't. This runner, I thought was from Germany, moves out into lane five so I can go by him. I look. In the center of his jersey was an eagle. Hmm. And I'm back to my dad, this little boy. You do these things, son. Someday you can have wings of an eagle. I'm this little boy. Wings of an eagle. My daddy says I can have wings of an eagle. I can win. I can win. Then I'm going to win. But I may not get this close again. I may never be this close again. But I'm going to win. And am I contradicting myself? It goes even deeper. I'm going to win. But I may not get to the finish line first, but I'm okay. going to still try. Yeah, and just that's what's all about. Legal, pumping my arms, the tape breaks across my chest. An official came up to me, and his words were simply, "Who are you? Who are you?" Doesn't even know your name. I mean, the footage there—you <laughs> flew by the two guys at the in the last straightaway there, and they looked surprised. I think uh, Ron looked to the right, like, "Who? Oh my God!" And you were—you just sped right. It's incredible. It's probably one of the. The most uh, memorable Olympic finishes in history on, of any sport. Uh, I think it's been rated like number top two or top one. Um, so they didn't even know your name when you won this thing. <laughs> Had no idea. The fisher says, who are you? Who are you? And I said, 
did I miscount the laps? Do I have one more lap? <laughs> I go, do I have one more lap to go? And he said, finished. You're a new Olympic champion. So I turn and a camera picks me up with people see where all I'm saying is number one. And it's almost like if I was bragging, but I was begging, do I, did I finish the race? Oh, and wow. I go to see the athlete that had the eagle on his jersey. It was not a German, and there was no eagle. But it was the runner that I saw. And I realized, oh, my God, there were two races. And I was getting very emotional. Then they said, is there anything we can do for you? I said, I want my wife. She's 95 meters up the track, 14 rows up, three seats in from the aisle. Patricia, Patricia said within moments, a gentleman is tapping her and said, Mrs. Mills, the new Olympic champion, wants his wife. <laughs> she came down and told me that, and I started crying. That's and amazing. Then I realized, I said, Pat, there were two races. I'm going to win, but I may not get to the finish line first. I healed a broken soul. The second race, I'm going to try to get to the finish line, though. <laughs> was winning the gold medal. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. But I mean, just just giving it your all would have been was was healing that soul that you talked about. Just giving it everything. And, and I mean, the footage itself speaks for itself. You gave it everything you had. I mean, it, you gave up so much that. It, it nobody even could, could compare the energy that you had at the end. It was just an, an, an incredible moment. Uh, one that everyone should go see again. It's on blogs.va.gov on this episode's blog. Um, you broke the world record at 10,000 meters. How better was that time compared to what your previous best was? Actually, I, I broke the Olympic record. Oh, you broke the Olympic record at the Olympic. Okay. Gotcha. We were under world record pace for the first 5,000. And gotcha. then periodically, when I'd go by Clark twice, he'd slowed the pace. And yeah. ultimately, I felt he was maybe getting tired. Sure. I don't know if he was or not. But the, the, Olympic, the Olympic record, I broke. I think I ran the second or third fastest 10,000 in the world. Wow. But my, my first fastest time was my fourth 10,000 meters. The gold was my fifth. Wow. And it was about a about a about a minute faster. Wow. So you, again, How, you, however, take the qualifying time when I won the, uh, the qualifying time was a six mile conversion. And that six mile conversion would convert to like a 2850. Okay. So I was basically right, right on the money. How much a lap? Wow. That's an idea. Just a, a snap of your fingers. So you came in with the confidence that you you were you were in contention with this. That's incredible. And nobody else knew it. That's amazing. Uh what got what do you think got you to that moment that at that time, at that exact moment in history? I think what got me there was the simple thought of my dad saying, It takes a dream to heal a broken soul. It takes a dream to heal a broken soul. Follow it up with, take the virtues and the values of our culture, our traditions, our spirituality. Extract out the virtues and values and put yeah. those into your daily life. Yeah. I put them into my training. 
equally part of that comment was, I fell in love with the right person, my wife, Pat. It's oh, beautiful. Yeah. I, I don't want to get, no, get emotional here, but oh, uh, wow. Hey, hey, sometimes you got to, man, when you talk about stuff like that. If um, I had not met her, I probably would have taken my life in suicide. Wow. So uh, yeah, she gave me a purpose to live. So in total, how many years did you serve in the Marine Corps? I took a three-year reserve commission. So I was active duty for three years. Okay. And that probably saved my life when I walked off the track August 12th, I think it was, Augsburg, Germany, set a new American record. I walked off the track and told Patricia, I'll never be world class again. It's too hard competing hypoglycemic and borderline diabetic. I'll, I'll continue to compete, but never at that world class level. It's, that, it's hard to stay at a top at a yeah. top level like that, yeah. for, you know, for a sustained period of time for anybody. And that, that led me to uh, being told that as a young Lakota man, my tribe gave me warrior status. They gave me my Lakota name, Ta Makosha Tekahila, which simply means loves your country. That's great more powerfully respects the earth. And they said, you must have your giveaway. Mm-hmm. So my giveaway became my Running Strong for American Indian Youth program. Yes. yes. That has been extremely successful, and we helped empower the, I'd let me put it this way, we helped empower the visions of the elders and inspire the dreams of the youth. And that lives on far beyond my gold medal. So you started that in the in the 80s, but... Uh, you got out, what year did you get out of the Marine Corps? I got out in December of 1965. Okay. When I came back back from Germany after I said I'll never be world class again, I go to General Hookmuth because I'd been receiving death threats. Really? Uh, From whom? I don't know, but in California on base. Wow. uh, I said I want to be retrained. I'll go to Vietnam. I'll go to Vietnam for a full tour of duty. He said, you're making it a career. And I said, no, sir. I just feel guilty. Friends of mine have already lost their lives. Sure. My Kansas teammate, Clifton Cushman, eventually first flight over to Vietnam killed, but that was after I got out. Yeah. My nephew, I said, I feel guilty. I want to do my part as as a Marine. And he said, Lieutenant, you did your part. You you were a peacetime hero. You did your part. Don't let anybody make you a Cold War SOB. You served the Corps well. So I got out, but I still felt guilt until about 15 years later, at at a Native American powwow, they want all the veterans down, combat veterans. So I'd sit up there with a couple of women veterans. And they said, but we want our Olympic gold medalist, Lieutenant Billy Mills, to come down. So I shot from the stands, but I'm not a combat veteran. And I'm a Vietnam-era veteran. 
So they called all veterans down. And I go down, and this old man, World War One veteran. Oh, wow. Came up to me, and he said, thank you for saying what you said. Wars are political. One we're for, the next word we're against. So we should always honor and respect all of our veterans. We should separate the war from the warrior. You helped include many of our warriors that never saw combat. And, but it still took another 10, 15 years before I could, the guilt could go away. Yeah. Well, I, I can only imagine being in that era and being in Vietnam and then, but again, you, you, you represented the U S so well. And then again, yeah, I could see where you, there, there would be almost like a survivor's guilt that a lot of veterans do experience almost like why not me too. Right. So my it, unit left for Vietnam, my, my, they were dismantling the elite Marine Corps track team yeah. on July 1, 1965. June 27th, I set a world record. So uh-huh. the Marine Corps is deciding, does Lieutenant Mills go back with his unit and go to Vietnam? Or do we send him to Russia to compete against the USSR? In the USA, USSR track and field meet. They sent me to Russia. Yeah. I felt so guilty. You shouldn't. That was where you were needed. So when I came back, that's when I go to General Hookmuth yep. and tell him that I want to be retrained and go to Vietnam for a full tour of duty just to pay respect an order to members of my unit that did not return. It, uh, it put the sport and the Olympics in its proper place. What, but what for you, what was it like leaving active service in 65, 66? What was that transition like for you personally, taking the uniform off, rejoining society? Where did you go? What did you do? And how did you get through? It's because even today, that's a very difficult transition for a lot of veterans. And so part of the show is to, to let others know how other people have successfully navigated that. How were you able to navigate that yourself, within yourself, during that time? I think I had an advantage because also athletes, athletes encounter that. Okay. Athletes yeah, call it absolutely. Post-athletic adjustment. So Tommy Thompson Sr. started helping me adjust to post-athletic adjustment to get ready for it. And that was also adjusting coming out of the military as a veteran. Yeah. Things that helped me with that is just being a veteran and being Lakota. I have been referred to Prairie N-word, using the N-word, Prairie N-word, because... I was a veteran, and I was, I was Native American. That came from Digit Storm, I'm told. So I've been spit upon and called that word five times, but it's been about 12 years since it last, last happened. Wow. So you, as a Native American veteran, you have other issues in society that, that half of me 
It doesn't have. Sure. The other half does. So, I again, I took the Lakota virtues and their values to use that for that adjustment. And that's where I took the virtue of the giveaway. Yeah. And elders are asking me, when are you going to have your giveaway? My giveaway became running strong for American Indian youth. And so would, would, it be, would, it, would it be accurate to say it was a rough time until you found that purpose in through running strong, through the giveaway, through the generosity? It was, it was a very challenging, a very challenging transition twofold as a veteran coming out of the Marine Corps yeah. who did not see combat, but lost friends in combat and the guilt that brought. Sure. Secondly, an Olympian. Your sports career is over. I walk off the track, Augsburg, Germany, telling my wife, Patricia, I'll never be world-class again. And post-athletic adjustment. What saved me, you're absolutely true. When the elders said, you must have your giveaway. People that helped empower you, you have to give back to them. So my giveaway first became the movie Running Brave, taking the inspiration that empowered me and passing it on to a younger generation. Yeah. And in conjunction with Running Strong for American Indian Youth, a book we wrote, Lessons of Lakota, with Nicholas Sparks, who has written yeah. a number of bestsellers no and, and, and movies. All, yeah, all the stuff and out Running there. Running Strong, I truly wanted to empower the visions of the elders and inspire the dreams of the youth. I met a man called Gene Kresak, who was looking for ideas of how he could build his nonprofit. He had just created Christian Relief Services, but had, had no legs yet. Yeah. We formed Running Strong for American Indian Youth under them. Later on, I put him in touch with uh, Kip Kano, and from there came Bread and Water for Africa. Uh, Christian Relief Services now does a lot of work in Africa. Mm. Under there is Running Strong, with the most powerful of the, of the nonprofits. We do incredible work on the reservations. The first task we, we took on the reservations, we went to our tribal chairman, Joe American Horse, who I used to compete against in college. He went to Nebraska. I went to Kansas. Oh, big rivalry. Nebraska there. and Kansas yeah. would have never come together unless you're both Lakota. <laughs> <laughs> and I said no. to Joe, of all the priorities the tribe has, what's the number one we could help you with? He simply said, water. Today, wow. we, we're connecting the main water lines that go through reservations to people within the villages, people in the outlying areas. So, a young girl can have a shower before she goes to school. Mother or grandmother had hot water to cook the dinner with. About what year? About what year was this? Did the, did you start doing this? We started uh, 30, 34 years ago. So with that water, with sometime that water, in the eighties. It's uh, amazing. Nine, it's amazing. Nineteen eighty six. So it's. I mean, that's a year after I was born. It's amazing to think that. In 1986, we were thinking about how to provide water for some of our people. Um, real quick, running strong, uh, your, the mission statement of your nonprofit, help Native American people meet their survival needs with food, water, and shelter while implementing and supporting programs designed to create opportunity for self-sufficiency, so important, and self-esteem, also very important. Um, 
So obviously you started doing this in 86 with providing water uh, to some, to some reservation uh, villages. How, what are you doing in 2021? Okay. 2021. That's an excellent question. How am I, how do we, how have we adjusted and adapted on the 50th anniversary of me winning the gold medal? That comes to five years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to honor our young Indian youth. I wanted to help inspire their dreams. We have an incredible running strong staff. I asked them to come up with an idea how we can inspire Indian youth using 10,000, 10,000 meter run, using 50, 50th anniversary. They came up with a five-year program picking 10 young men and women a year who had a dream that could empower their community. We chose the top 10, flew them into Washington, D.C. for what we created was the Dream Starters Academy. They had some teachings and communication, et cetera. We give them their $10,000 check. They go back and start to implement it. The next year, 10. The fifth year, 50, 50th anniversary. Mm. We picked five of those 50 and awarded them $50,000 grants. So with, and before you give them the money, they have to show you how they're going to implement that money to help their own society. Absolutely. They partner with another nonprofit, the Dream Starter that has the dream, finds another nonprofit. They partner with them. They learn how they can implement their dream, uh, all the checks and balances. Then they submit the application. We choose, we further prepare them for implementing their dream with their nonprofit. They go back to their community and start the implementation. One, one of the young people was starting dental, dental school, and she studied how there were so few dentists available. She wanted to empower other young Indian children, young people coming out of high school. So she used the $10,000, partnered with Stills University, had this great American Native American leader to, to help her, and start putting on clinics on what it would be like going to dental school. She found other dollars of support. Today, she's probably empowered another 20, 25 young students, finding scholarships, getting them through dental school. That's amazing. So uh, without getting into names, because we've got so many, uh, one, young, one young man paralyzed from the waist down, I think at age 12 or so. He was a young athlete. So in his wheelchair, he was still trying to adapt to a more quality lifestyle. And he applied. He was one of the recipients. He put on basketball clinics on his reservation, thinking maybe 12 people in a wheelchair will show up. I think he had over 100 show up, but not just from his reservation. That has led him to a full scholarship for college, and that has given him his own nonprofit to teach others and to implement a more quality lifestyle for people who are disabled. So he has his own nonprofit. He's one of the $50,000 recipients. And it just goes on and on and on. That's good stuff. Resilience of the Indian youth and their brilliance is there. 
They just need the opportunity and they need the teachers. They need the mentors. And my running strong staff is doing that. Very good. Very good. Um, now you also do speaking tours. Are you still on the road 300 days every year? You know, they say WWE wrestlers are grinding it out for over 300 days and you know, the, which the way they travel is crazy. Uh, and you're, you're right on that pace. Uh, are you still going over 300 days traveling, speaking, talking? The, the year we finished 2019, my wife and I probably traveled 260 days that year. Wow. Oh, and we were starting to so, get back. So just cutting back like <laughs> six, 40 days. You're kidding. Yeah. You're killing me. You're killing me. Why, why, why travel? What, what's it? What's it? Is it cathartic for you? Why travel so much? Why, what are you doing with all these talks? What do you hope to achieve? And again, is it, is it cathartic for you as well? It, it's kind of twofold. Uh, that's why I travel so much. One, I truly want in some way to empower Native American communities. And I now have this, Gene Kresick and I have this incredible running strong staff that's doing that. It's good and, stuff. But I also want to be involved. Uh, I, I love to teach young Indian people the virtues, truth versus honesty. Liberty as it ties into freedom. But also, I love going to other countries, sitting down with other Olympians, other young people, and comparing the virtues and the values to promote global unity with the dignity, character, beauty of global diversity. November 2019, we're in Tunisia uh, with Mohamed Gamoudi. Uh, <laughs> Your old rival. <laughs> yes. And he's trying to show me the city. He's trying to show me the sights. And I said, I want to see your farm. And he said, oh, Billy, like Native American, Mother Earth, the soil. I said, yes. So we connected. We go through, visit his farm. We both spoke. As we finished speaking, the comment was made and alluded to in both of our presentations. I used the word global unity with the dignity, character, beauty of global diversity. The future of humankind, if we choose unity, national unity, with the dignity, character, and beauty of national diversity, if we choose. The audience stood up and gave us a standing ovation in the middle of presentations. The next day, their Department of, of Tourism called us and said, can we put you and Billy Muhammad, your comments in our new brochure on tourism, unity through diversity. And we agreed. Muhammad told me 2012 in London Olympic Games, he said, I told my daughter the first time he thought he was going to win was 70 meters from the finish. And Billy is an American Indian. And he was like an arrow being shot out of a bow. Boom. <laughs> he goes by me and he won. And I was so, so happy for you, Billy. He speaks Arabic and French. 
So Nadia, his beautiful daughter, incredibly intelligent young lady, she's interpreting for him. Oh, wow. I said, Muhammad, I beat you. How could you be happy for me? He said, no, 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 no. You didn't beat me. You won. You won. The big difference. So I said, Muhammad, I've always said that moment was a gift to me from God. I've always felt, he said, that moment, anybody who wins a race the way you did. So I said, do you mean maybe that moment was a gift to me? I go into his world from Allah. He says, yes, yes, yes. It's a gift from the creator in your world from God, maybe Jesus. But there's one God, and we can come together and we can understand one another. Yeah. So I've spoken globally. I've gone to 110 countries just promoting global you, unity. You live for, you live for moments like that, it sounds like. Yeah. It sounds like you live for moments like that. And, and I want to continue those moments. 83 yeah. years old now, and <laughs> waiting, waiting for two hip surgeries. Don't look, day day 40, for you don't look a day over 40, Billy. You don't look a day over 40. That's amazing. Very good. Um, for veterans that want to give, do their own give back, have their own generosity, uh, to do more service like you are, sir, uh, what advice do you have for them if they're searching for that same thing that you were searching for? You know, an incredible giveaway that many veterans are doing. Uh, I've sat down and talked to one of our gang members, just just telling them a difference between a gang member and a veteran. And then okay. one big difference is when we both want to belong. The veteran will belong by taking the virtues and the values of his or her tribe and putting those virtues and values into their daily life. A gang member may want to belong so powerfully they join a gang. But what they and don't forsake have with all them. those things. Is that yeah. Gotcha. They don't have the virtues and the values. So, they do at they, they join at the expense of all those yes. virtues and values. Yeah. And uh, I know many veterans that are teaching young young men and women that. Uh, one gang member said, Billy, I really expect you I really, really respect you but it's too late for me. And I simply said, party, never too late. It's never too late to start becoming a Lakota warrior. Very good. Very good. It's never too late to give back. That is what I'm inferring from that um, as advice to other veterans. Billy, what is one thing that you learned during your time in the military that you apply to what you do today? I learned loyalty with virtues and values the marine corps taught me it's okay billy to bring those lakota virtues and values into the core and you live those virtues and values that'll make you just as strong of a marine as our marine corps training very good um billy we've uh we've covered a lot of ground we've gone through uh, your entire career military post-military nonprofit work is there anything that I missed or haven't asked that you think is important to share? I, I would love the veterans to know 
Native American veterans, non-Native American veterans, all veterans to know this country was built on footprints. Mine, theirs, our ancestors, immigrants bringing new footprints to America to truly help grow, mature this incredible democratic experiment. We need to understand each other's footprints. We need to listen before we speak and understand each other's footprints because there are two groups that can bring our communities together. There are two groups in America worldwide that can bring dreams, the American dream for everybody, dreams for everybody. That's the veterans of the countries of the world. That's the Olympians of the countries of the world. And here in the United States of America, our veterans, our Olympians, can better prepare our young people the challenges they face growing up to understand footprints laid in the past and how we have to understand those footprints and we have to choreograph the beautiful horizon of America's future collectively. That is very well said. That is very well said. And I think that's a great way to end this in the whole conversation and this entire journey that we, you and I have been on, uh, Billy, this was an honor. Uh, thank you. Thank you for your time to come on board the battle. And, uh, and we're out. See you <laughs> to the next time, guys. Have a good one. Thank you. Thank you. I served in Vietnam. I served in World War II. I served in Afghanistan. And VA serves us all. No matter when you served. No matter if you saw combat or not. There are benefits for veterans of every generation. See what VA can do for you. To learn what benefits you may be eligible for, visit www.va.gov. That's www.va.gov. I want to thank Billy for his time here on Born the Battle. For more information on Billy Mills, go to indianyouth.org forward slash who hyphen we hyphen r forward slash Billy hyphen Mills. This week's Born the Battle Veteran of the Week is from these current Olympics that are going down right now in Tokyo, Japan. I was perusing NBC's Olympic clips on YouTube recently. An Army veteran, Vincent Hancock, kind of stood out. The Army veteran who was on the Army marksmanship team during his time in service. Last week won an unprecedented third gold medal in Skeet as he won gold also in 2008, 2012, and now in 2020. He is one of the most decorated shooters in the history of the sport with 29 medals from various world competitions, 23 of them being gold. Congrats to Army veteran Vincent Hancock, and thank you for your service. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate your veteran as a future Born the Battle Veteran of the Week so we can all learn their story, you can. Just send an email to podcast at va.gov, include a short write-up, and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. 
And if you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon, pretty much any podcasting app, not a phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, RallyPoint, LinkedIn, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, no matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I'm reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast, nor any media products or services they may provide. I say that because the song you're hearing now is called Machine Gunner, which is courtesy of the nonprofit Operation Song and was written by Marine veteran Mark McKilhenny, Nashville songwriter Jason Seaver, and Michael Duncan. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. It's good to be back. And we'll see you right here next week. Take care. We gotta get them one way or the other. Machine gun. Firefight bullets fly to my brain. Simplify to another campaign. My desk is a rock where the drug lords cut up millions. My pen is a 7.62 round that'll cut them down in an instant. Made bullet in my back Raining down there Punching that clock Get them boys, I'm laying down Cover machine gunner bullets fly to my brain Simplify, do or die Another campaign Here we go, lock and load 0331, lug a thousand rounds And I ain't bringing back one When I got my world record San Diego I asked the United States national governing body, can you measure the track for 10,000 meters? Because I want to get two rail records in one, the six mile and the 10,000. Wow. I was told by one of the AAU officials, this is America, Lieutenant Mills. We run yards, not meters. <laughs> so I go to my wife and I tell her, I'm upset, I'm going low blood sugar. I'm not gonna go for the world record today. She said, you've been training for it. Go for it. And I, getting angry, going low, what do you know about it? She said, hold it. Wait. I'll be right back. And she goes running up the steps in the stadium to a concession stand. She comes back with a candy bar. (laughs) So you're telling me you were the Snickers commercial before the Snickers commercial. And then she looked at me and said, eat, eat. So in three bites, the Candy bar is gone. Then she said, go for the world record. You may never get another chance. Well, the way it turned out, I never got another chance. And you were able to knock it out. That's amazing.